sung by Edward Meeker, Edison Records. He was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad. Just to root for the hometown through every zoo, Katie Blue. On a Saturday, her young beau called to see if she'd like to go to see a show. But Miss Kate said, no, I'll tell you what you can do. Take me out to the ball game, take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and crackers, Jack. I don't care if I do. Listening to a million little gods from the University of Hamburg. I'm Ben Federson, and I'm Aaron Gowan. Uh, it's not really season three because we're not changing topics, and we we just sort of took a break. So think of this as like side B of the record. So it's season two, side B, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I have to add another another caveat, and I hope you're okay with this. Okay. Uh, uh, do you have any problem with me turning this back into WUHH Sports Talk Radio? Uh, absolutely not. Yay, okay. Are you okay with me turning this back into um num, 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 Boston sports talk talk radio? No, wait, wait. Are you gonna are you gonna start talking about the Patriots again? Because then I will have to stop you. No. No, I'm not. In fact I get uh, sports seasonal affective disorder whenever the uh the leaves start twirling to the ground because I couldn't give fewer um fucks about um football. Really couldn't care less. But no, this I'm actually wanting to talk about uh, the Red Sox. Okay, Red Sox is all right. Yes. Okay, great. I'm glad you're on board with this. All right, then. Let's take that vinyl record for season two and flip it on our tiered table and set it to side B. Side B starts with a flashback to a scene we first encountered in episode one of this season. You may have noticed that the seasons and holidays affect the mood and setting of this show, and well, it's usually when spring rolls around that my mind turns to baseball. Easter and opening day, March, crocuses and daffodils, and a fresh 162 games still to be played. I think of those classic opening lines from John Updike's seminal New Yorker piece on Ted Williams, Hub fans bid kid adieu. Fenway Park in Boston, Updike writes, is a lyric little bandbox of a ballpark. Everything is painted green and seems in curiously sharp focus. Like the inside of an old-fashioned peeping type Easter egg. But that piece, which was published exactly 59 years ago to the day that I record this, isn't set in the spring. It's set on an unremarkable day in in late September. And the Easter imagery at the beginning is a ruse on Updike's part. Hope springs eternal in baseball, but it's a long game with long seasons that 
spread all the way into the fall. And like a liturgical season, September and October are a time of glory for only a few and a reminder of another sort of fall for most of the players and fans. Contrary to what you might have heard, Ted Williams was not the greatest hitter who ever lived. Not by any quantifiable measure. John Updike wasn't the greatest writer who ever lived. There's no conceivable way to even quantify that. But there's something about the the sheer productivity of both men and the discipline with which they applied themselves to their given tasks and the virtuosic way that they conjured flashes of grandeur in moments that should have been routine, something about those qualities that makes them stand out as exceptional. We recognize ourselves in their mix of faults and accomplishments, although only a fool would make that comparison. As I say, Updike's story is set on September 28, 1960, a cold, overcast last home game of the season for a Red Sox team that, like, seemed inevitable back then, just as it did in the late 90s and early 2000s when I first became a fan, was magnificent on paper, but perennially underachieving. I took a seat behind third base, Updike writes. A uniformed groundskeeper was treading the top of this wall, picking batting practice home runs off the screen like a mushroom gatherer seen in Wordsworthian perspective on the verge of a cliff. The day was overcast, chill, and uninspirational. A minimum crowd of 10,453 milled in to watch Williams play the last home game of his career. It would be his last game entirely, in fact, as he wouldn't join the team on their final away series in New York. Williams was an old man by baseball standards. The same age as me, 42. He played his whole major league career in Boston, and with that time all the discrepant entanglements of grievance and decency that a family member could have had accreted on him. Boston had never made it easy for him, and he had never made it easy for Boston. The sports scene was, is, a raucous, unregulated bulldog of a front there. There's a lot of party pre and ad hominem attacks, and it's incredibly provincial and short-sighted. Sort of like a geographically contained Twitter sphere, or, you know, the ethnological dumpster fire that was your junior year of high school. Nineteen thirty-nine, Williams' first year in the majors was 
a fairy tale in which he batted 327 with 31 home runs and 145 runs batted in, leading the American League. It wasn't until the 1940 season that Williams' mercurial side cast its shadow over his performance. When he started the season with only two hits in five games and a couple of fielding errors, fans began to jeer him. He lashed out at the press and told his teammates he would never tip his hat again. That sort of irascibility in someone so capable has an effect on people. People forget you're an individual in the world. That you have a sense of self just like everyone else. They assume a certain amount of privilege and and then they figure you're fair game. And that's what happened to Williams. As Ben Bradley Jr. writes in his biography of Williams, like the fans, reporters found Williams easy to provoke, and then his public rages would become fair game to report. Williams certainly suffered in this combative context, but he also thrived on it, using the antagonism as a motivator. In Bradley's words, the newspapers became a bogeyman that Williams constructed to feed the fire of antagonism that was central to his ability to perform well. He always said that he hit best when he was angry. In 1941, Williams hit 406 for the season, the last time any player with a normal number of at-bats per game hit above 400. It's never happened since. The next year, though, he was forced to leave the league for three years to join the war as a Navy airman. And he had a second stint as a pilot in the Korean War. Those two tours of duty remove the prime years from his career and leave an asterisk on his stat record. All of this time, his biggest antagonist was the sports journalist Dave Egan, more popularly known as the Colonel, who made it his mission to regularly berate Williams in his column. As Bradley tells it in his book, Essentially, Egan condemned Williams for being a consummate individualist who had no problem boorishly berating journalists and fans alike. But Egan's biggest criticism was that when it really counted, when the Sox's season was on the line, Williams couldn't perform. Egan based his criticism on one all-important fact. In Bradley's words, in the 10 most important games of his career, the seven World Series games of 1946, the playoff game for the pennant against the Cleveland Indians in 1948, and the final two games of the 1949 season against the New York Yankees, in which the pennant was on the line, Ted hit just 205. Dave Egan wasn't just a sardonic malcontent, although he was sort of that too. 
he happened to play an important part in the breaking through of baseball's color line. The Red Sox notoriously didn't integrate until 1959, making them the last team to do so. The owner, Tom Yockey, was intensely opposed to it. But in 1944, the Boston City Councilman Isidore Muchnik tried to force their hand by using Boston's infamous blue laws, which stated that businesses couldn't be opened on Sundays without the city council's waiver. Muchnik told the Sox manager, Eddie Collins, that he wouldn't give them permission to hold home games at Fenway on Sundays unless they opened their player tryouts to black players. Collins claimed that they had never had black players express interest in playing for them, which was, of course, a lie. In any case, Collins caved and said he would open the tryouts to black players. But when three hopefuls from the Negro Leagues did show up, Sam Jethro, Marvin Williams, and one Jackie Robinson, they were never invited in, and they holed up in a hotel waiting for their chance. When he caught wind of the situation, Dave Egan was the reason black players were finally able to try out for Major League Baseball for the first time. As the sports writer and historian Glenn Stout tells it, Egan was perhaps the most talented and best-educated sports columnist in Boston at the time. Few other sports writers anywhere at the time had the courage or conviction to call for the integration of Major League Baseball. Here are two, believe it or not, items exclusively for the personal enlightenment of Mr. Edward Trowbridge Collins, general manager of the Boston Red Sox. He is living in Anno Domini, 1945, and not in the dust-covered year of 1865. He is residing in the city of Boston, and not in Mobile, Alabama. Therefore, we feel obliged to inform you that since Wednesday last, three citizens of these United States have been attempting vainly to get a tryout with his ball team. Egan's provocation backed Collins into a corner and the three players were given tryouts. Although, as you already guessed, Jethro Williams and Jackie Robinson never heard back from the Red Sox. It would be another two years before Jackie Robinson finally broke through the color barrier by joining the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Williams was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1966, the first year he was eligible, with 93% of the vote. The time span of Williams's career had overlapped seamlessly with the part baseball played in the civil rights movement. He 
He led the Red Sox to World Series appearances and through pennant races just as Robinson was breaking into the league. He had, by his own standards, struggled at the plate, batting only 318 in 1951, just as Willie Mays emerged as one of the game's greatest players, forming Major League Baseball's first all-black outfield with Monty Irvin and Hank Thompson. Hank Aaron didn't break Babe Ruth's all-time home run record until 1974, but Williams had been there for the prime years of Aaron's career when he'd posted monstrous numbers, winning numerous batting titles and flirting twice with the Triple Crown. And when Pubsy Green became the first black Red Sox player in 1959, Williams had openly and warmly welcomed him. But for the most part, Williams had kept quiet during those years. He hadn't seemed interested in sticking his neck out for the cause of baseball integration. That's why it came as an enormous and fairly unexpected shock when Williams included this part of his acceptance speech in 1966. And I hope that someday the names of Satchel Page and Josh Gibson in some way can be added as a symbol of the great Negro players that are not here only because they were not given a chance. At that point, Williams had amassed enough clout and goodwill that though the Hall of Fame committee requested that he leave the part about Satchel Page and Josh Gibson out of his speech, no one chafed when he included it anyhow. Monty Irvin told the late great baseball journalist Tom Singer that he had no idea Williams harbored any such feelings. But he was glad he did, because Williams paved the way for Negro players to get into the Hall of Fame. Yes, Greedo, I was just getting out my phone to compose an email. Tell all the donors I have new episodes ready to release. Yeah, but this time I have the episodes. I don't have them with me. It didn't even be possible. Look, I changed the ending to the last episode to make it look like this whole break thing was planned. I figure I can just change episodes any way I want to, anytime I want to. I could just add the word McClunky or something to them and nobody will really even notice. Just to, just tell the donors. Look, we all have to sleep sometime. You think we had a choice? We're all working full-time jobs with kids and house moves and all that kind of thing. Then Corona came and we kept the kids at home, worked with them all up in our jelly for 24-7, converted our university courses into online courses while teaching and managed remote learning. It sure would be a lot easier if a few people went to patreon.com slash a million little gods and became patrons. But look, look, we got it all under control now. The second half of the season's just started. We got a nice set of episodes in the can. Everything's just the way it's supposed to be. Over my dead body. Yes, I'll bet you have. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know. Sorry about the mess.
Millions of items of the outward order, said William James, are present to my senses, which never properly enter into my experience. Why? Because they have no interest for me. My experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items which I notice shape my mind. Without selective interest, experience is an utter chaos. Interest alone gives accent and emphasis, light and shade, background and foreground. Intelligible perspective in a word. It varies in every creature, but without it, the consciousness of every creature would be a gray, chaotic indiscriminateness impossible for us even to conceive. That passage from James's Principles of Psychology has been hovering in the air lately. It was a jumping-off point for artist and writer Jenny O'Dell's marvelous book, How to Do Nothing. O'Dell's focus in her book is on individuals and freeing up their attention just as James intended, but we're not monads. And James's point that each creature's experience is what it agrees to attend to. Well, that's true of humans collectively, too. I don't think you ought to go to London. I have to go. Back in March, you know, before the snappening, Stephen Metcalf of the Sleek Culture Gab Fest a former guest of our show, was discussing the ferment surrounding Woody Allen's attempt to publish a memoir. Do you still love me or what? Stephen noticed that for 35 years, no one as much as raised an eyebrow at the relationship between Allen's 42-year-old character and a, and a 17-year-old character played by Mariel Hemingway in, in the movie Manhattan. But guess what? I turned 18 the other day. I'm legal, but I'm still a kid. You're not such a kid, 18 years old. You know, you can... It was considered maybe a little bit provocative, but nothing more. And Steve's intention wasn't to cast aspersions on the criticism now being lobbed retrospectively at that movie in light of the fact that we've collectively decided Woody Allen is probably, you know, a sexual deviant. Steve just wanted to point out that there are certain matters of history that we have to account for in our judgments. We can't ignore that the same facts were right there in front of us for years and we just collectively agreed they weren't noteworthy. You know, it's just the way I was looking at things then. Now, my initial take on that was it would be hard to judge this collective behavior normatively. That is, the way I saw it, at any moment in time, our collective model of the world doesn't even take certain facts into account, not as morally good or bad things, but simply as things at all. But I, I wrote Steve to ask him his reaction, and, and his response clarified something important. Can we live or act morally, he asked, without at least some feeling of moral certitude? And where does that certitude come from if not some intuition that what's right is fixed, somewhere beyond our whims, or even perception?
Now, if you've listened to this show at all regularly, and and I know that regularly here is a euphemism because we haven't we haven't produced in a long time, but still, if you've listened to this show with any regularity at all, then you'll know that I am personally amenable to any argument that what's right is fixed and not subject to our whims or perceptions. But of course, Steve was right. Knowing most moral truths is not simply a matter of perceiving them as manifestly there. It's a matter of moral calculation. He writes, The canonization of Manhattan happened because the relationship between the Woody Allen and Mariel Hemingway characters was not regarded as so inherently asymmetrical as to be exploitative. Which must mean we did not think of A, sex is always a function of power, and B, 17-year-olds as incapable of informed consent. Evidence that these were not widely held beliefs, at least within the upper-middle-brow film Cognacenti, are right there on Wikipedia. To this day, the wiki page displays a universal acclaim for the movie, with no mention of exploitation, much less statutory rape. Are we now so sure the movie is corrupt because of the revelations about Alan? Maybe. That's part of it. But I think the bigger reason is we've come to understand how economic and social advantages of men have historically forced women to use sex as currency. And once you understand that, how can you countenance this relationship? I agree with Steve. There are fixed moral facts in the universe, and they are not contingent on people's whims. Our ideas, the thoughts that come into our heads, most often subconsciously compelled by others carrying those thoughts as well, those ideas are tools we use to navigate the social world. And occasionally, some of those thoughts strike us as morally valuable. We think they are the practical co-relatives of fixed moral truths. And so, we build our model of the moral universe with those truths as our parameters. But models are limited by the variables we use and the functions we set them in. A perfect model would be coterminous with all things. It would be eternal, and it would be worth it. But that's not how models work. If it's the 1970s and we've built our moral model of sexual politics around the principles of sex positivity, then any consensual activity we engage in is essentially healthy and good, no matter what our age. And any problem you might have with that is on you. It can be only a symptom of your own internalized misogyny. But if we add a new variable into our parameters, namely the correlation of sex, with the struggle for power and advantage, then suddenly the danger of exploitation, both in sex positivity and in paternalistic sheltering of girls, is laid bare. Suddenly we see all kinds of abuses that were hidden in plain sight. Fenway Park home of the Boston Red Sox baseball team. And here's one of the most famous players that ever wore a Red Sox uniform, Ted Williams, whose career was twice interrupted for military service. 
Let's take a good look at this famous number nine and see just what helped Ted to hit over 400 in a single season. To hold sixth place in total RBIs, be named American League batting champ six times, and to compile a 344 lifetime batting average. One thing for sure, whether fielding or hitting the home runs for which he is so famous, one of Ted's biggest assets is his fine competitive spirit. Whatever he does, he does well. Simply pick up the bat like you would an axe. And to form a simple V, start hitting at balls two or three inches outside, or two or three inches inside, or two or three, four inches high. You're going to increase your strike zone, and you'll find it a lot more difficult to be getting good balls to hit. Nobody before Ted Williams had ever thought as deeply about the science of hitting. He literally wrote the book. Like, that's the name, Science of Hitting. I dare say nobody has ever thought about it as much since. Then again, I don't dare say that, because Doug Latta. We'll get to that later. I've had a long-standing obsession with Ted Williams. Not merely because of his accomplishments. I'm definitely no hitter, and I'm too lazy and easily distracted to even try to be good at it. Nor even because of the vexing difficulty of saying whether he or anyone is the greatest hitter of all time. We'll get to that later, too. The fascination for me lies in the one domain where I feel I can relate to him most. You see, for all his determination and grit and commitment and practice, there were aspects of his life in which he failed repeatedly in spite of himself and his own best intentions and even love. For lack of a better way to put it, Ted Williams could be an ordinary son of a bitch. He was an absent father, although he seemed to have always regretted it and cared deeply about his children. I'd like to refrain from dwelling on the curious story of how his own and his son John Henry's final remains came to be stored and dismembered in a cryogenic chamber. Suffice it to say, it simply struck me as a, a sad affair of mixed-up recrimination and hope and mutual love and regret. Try as he may from time to time, he simply didn't seem to have the requisite skills to be a good husband or father. I think I've done better than Ted in those domains, but still. Futile practice and self-discipline, shortcuts and frustrated attempts to understand my own motivations. I know what that feels like. But he was a real person, an individual soul, and as Bob Costas once noted in an interview, there was a fundamental integrity to Ted Williams. Even if people disagreed with you, there's a certain consistency through all the years about you. Do you have a personal code that you could explain? What's your personal code? Yeah. Somebody said the other day, he said, I don't believe in God, but he just said, I believe in good. I have my own way of knowing whether I'm doing things right or whether I'm going to be proud of some of the things and lots, a lot of things I've done I haven't been proud of. But I do believe in doing things right, being the best you can, uh, 
treat people as you'd like to have them treat you. And uh, I think if you, I think the great thing I like to see in any person, I said this to my kids and I've said it to anybody that I'm around that uh, I like enthusiasm. You show me enthusiasm and boy, I'll show you and you had it and you must have had it. This guy that's successful must have had it. You got to have enthusiasm or you're going to sleep it away. Back in 2014, when Ben Bradley's masterful biography of Ted Williams came out, a new variable was added to our model of who Ted Williams was and what he meant to baseball and American culture. I don't want to say Bradley brought anything new to light, because Ted had written about it himself in his autobiography, My Turn at Bat, and he never explicitly denied it. But Bradley made apparent what was hiding in plain sight, that Ted Williams was of second-generation Mexican heritage. And you could even make the case that he was Latinx. I think this is a case where, in a change to the parameters of the model, allows you to see new data represented, but maybe not salient data. Or if it is salient, then it tells us something more important about the context than the actual target subject. In less wonky-talky words, you're seeing something there, whatever that means, but it doesn't fundamentally change the model. Ted Williams was definitely aware of prejudices against Mexican people and definitely took some passive measures to diminish that part of his identity. If I had my mother's name, he writes in My Turn at Bat, there's no doubt I would have run into problems in those days with the prejudices people had in Southern California. But the thing is, I think we can learn from the stories of Ted's youth more about Ted's misogyny and the difficulties he had with women throughout his life than any internalized shame about his Mexican heritage. You see, Ted harbored a lifelong resentment towards his mother, Mae Venzor Williams, a Mexican-American immigrant to San Diego via El Paso. Ted always blamed her for abandoning him and his brother. Their father was always drunk and nearly completely missing from their lives, and their mother was a religious zealot. She became an officer in the Salvation Army to take care of the sick and poor between San Diego and Tijuana. My mother was strictly Salvation Army, strictly uh, non-family, a wonderful woman in, in so many ways, but uh, I wouldn't want to be married to a gal like that. The house was dirty and Jesus, I hated it. That's enough information right there already to psychologize Ted's anger and contradictions. You don't have to add a category like Latinx to his identity, especially one that he never embraced.
we might even be justified in saying that Ted Williams doesn't deserve to bear the title Latinx. He downplayed his ancestry until 1970 and enjoyed the advantages of a traditional white identity. We can easily imagine there might have been an equally talented but hardworking, determined young Latin player in San Diego in the 1930s who didn't reach ascendancy because of his embrace of his Mexican ancestry. To quote Gray's elegy in a country churchyard, full many a flower is born to blush unseen and wasted sweetness in the desert air. But that would only be a tragedy because that one young person's ambition would have been thwarted. The stories that stir our emotions are those in which an individual human spirit achieves its goals. Ted Williams was talented, hardworking. Perhaps no one has ever worked harder at the particular task of hitting a baseball, and he was determined. In 1941, the same year that Ted batted 406, reporter George Kirksey asked him whether he had any desire to break Joe DiMaggio's newly set 56 consecutive game hitting record. I sure have, Ted replied. I'd like to break every hitting record in the books. When I walk down the street, I'd like for them to say, there goes Ted Williams, the best hitter in baseball. Ted never came close to DiMaggio's record. No one has. There's no single quantifiable stat that proves Ted Williams was the greatest hitter who ever lived. We'll look more closely at the discontents of measuring success in part two of this episode. But I will say this. Ted Williams was moved by his conscience to call out for Negro League greats to be honored in the Hall of Fame. Joe DiMaggio never did that. Anyway, I'm going back to where we started this episode. To the scene of the story everyone who recounts the myth of Ted Williams tells. In his last at-bat in professional baseball, in the bottom of the eighth inning, the crowd's standing now because they know that one of the greatest players ever to play in Fenway, or anywhere in the game, is at-bat for the last time. Ted hit a couple of fly balls out that wouldn't carry earlier in the game. Fisher throws a ball, then a fastball strike right down the middle of the plate that Ted somehow misses. Ted said he knew Fisher thought he was too slow to catch a fastball, so he was going to try throwing it again. Fisher does try it. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive, the deep right. That ball is gone, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the major league. As he rounded the bases, Ted said he considered tipping his hat, but he didn't do it. In John Updike's words, though we thumped, wept, and chanted we want Ted for minutes after he hid in the dugout, he did not come back. Our noise for some seconds passed beyond excitement into a kind of immense open anguish, a wailing, a cry to be saved. But immortality is non-transferable. The paper said that the other players, even the umpires on the field, begged him to come out and acknowledge us in some way. But he never had, and he did not now. Gods do not answer letters. 
A Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg. Writing by Ben Fennerson and me, Aaron Gowan. And editing, production, and sound engineering by me. You can find us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash a million little gods. We're on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at AMLG podcast. And we're also on Instagram, AMLG underscore podcast. Find us, like us, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe write us a review. And we'll see you next week for episode 10, Ballpark Figures, part two.